Welcome to Trial Alchemy. Important issues are decided and amazing things happen every day in civil jury trials. In this podcast, I'm going to interview outstanding civil trial lawyers who are members of the American Board of Trial Advocates, ABOTA. They are the very best plaintiff and defense civil trial lawyers. To be admitted to ABOTA, they had to have tried 20 or more civil jury trials to conclusion had to be excellent trial lawyers, and also had to be honest, civil, and professional in their interactions with their opponents and the court. We'll talk about what works and what doesn't work when you try a case to a jury. Hi, I'm your host, Monty McIntyre. I've been a California civil trial lawyer since December of 1980 and a member of ABOTA since 1995. These days, I help settle cases as a mediator and decide cases or issues as an arbitrator and a referee. I also mentor lawyers to help them become excellent civil trial lawyers and mentor law firm associates to quickly become productive members of their firms. This podcast is brought to you by California Case Summaries, an online civil case summary publication that enables California civil lawyers to always know the new case law in their practice areas and apply this knowledge to gain a competitive advantage over their opponents to get better results and win more cases. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Trial Alchemy. And I'm delighted today to have as my guest, Ken Siegelman. Ken is the founder of Kenneth M. Siegelman and Associates in San Diego. He's been practicing law with that firm, his firm, own firm, since 1987. And his practice emphasizes civil litigation with an emphasis on jury trials, binding arbitrations, specializing catastrophic personal injury, medical malpractice, and elder abuse. And Ken has been somebody who's been very active uh, as a trial lawyer. He's he's an amazing guy who tries case after case, year after year, and gets outstanding results. He's been the trial lawyer of the year uh, for the Consumer Attorneys of San Diego two years in 2009 and 2018. He's had numerous years where he's won an outstanding trial lawyer award for individual case verdicts for the consumer attorneys of San Diego. He's been involved in many legal organizations over his career. He was the president of the consumer attorneys of San Diego in 2008. And he's a member of the American Board of Trial Advocates of BOTA. And Ken served as the president of the San Diego chapter in 2012. Ken is somebody who really knows his medicine. He got his law training first, and then he went to medical school. And so he's really been somebody specializing in medical malpractice throughout his career. So without any further ado, Ken, welcome to Trial Alchemy, and thank you so much for being a guest today. Thanks, Monty. It's great to be with you. Well, let's start off with this question, Ken. Uh, you've had a lot of trials. And you've had great results over many years. So what's what's one of your most satisfying trial experiences and results? There are a lot of uh, trials that have given me some large satisfaction. I think the one that stands out maybe the most 
and maybe because it's relatively recent and maybe because of the facts or a combination of the two. It was a case that I tried five years ago involving uh, a young woman, 18 years old, who underwent uh, a procedure, just a, a scoping procedure of her esophagus and stomach and small intestine called an endoscopy procedure. And the anesthesiologist let her uh, pressure get too low. And she had an anoxic brain injury, meaning brain injury due to lack of oxygen. Afterwards, her verbal IQ actually was 118. This was wow. post-injury. But yet, from a performance standpoint, from a functional standpoint, she could no longer function at anything close to the level she was at before. Her plans to go to college, become a nurse, to do missionary work, all of those things were scrapped. Her ability to concentrate was gone. She had some physiologic changes as well, intolerance to heat, uh, rapid heartbeat, and yet the MRI scans of her brain were all normal. And to look at her, she looked okay. And so there was some very sophisticated testing that had to be done that provided some truly objective evidence that she in fact had a brain injury. And one of the fascinating aspects of her brain injury is that it included something called disinhibition. Uh, meaning there are neurons, there are cells in our brain that inhibit various kinds of behaviors or activities. Her injury involved, in part, disinhibition of brain cells in the visual area in the back of her brain. So while she was not independent in many areas of daily functioning, she became kind of an art savant. Wow. Art was good enough to be shown at shows, and it was a very abstract, creative kind of art. So proving to a jury the life-altering nature of her injury was a real challenge. But I was very fortunate that uh, my clients and her family are wonderful people. Uh, they worked uh, very hard uh, to help me um, prepare the case and told the story at trial. And I was fortunate uh, to have a judge who let us try the case and a jury who was open-minded and listened to it and returned a verdict against a very well-qualified, prominent anesthesiologist who, apart from what he'd done in this case, uh, certainly um, generally uh, practiced within the standard of care, but did not in this case, and I was able to get a very substantial verdict. Wow, that's a great result. And I'm sure that was a challenge to show all those injuries. Was, and the test that I was referring to um, is called uh, a, a PET or positron emission um, scan of the brain, which uh, showed uh, particular um, intense activity, and this is the distance of distance that I was talking about, in the 
back area of the brain called the visual associative cortex hmm. and in the frontal area of the brain that involves uh, things like speech and language and also behavior, which were impacted significantly in her case. And wow. we were also able to show some of her drawings before and after and show how it went from very simplistic, um, you know, drawing as kind of a occasional interest thing with these very concrete images to wildly abstract things that you wouldn't believe came from the same person. Wow. Amazing. So in, in terms of You've tried a lot of cases, Ken, and actually you tend to try many cases or several cases every year. They're big cases and they take a long time. How do you get, you know, in that final crunch time, whether it's a month or however long you have, what's what's the system or method you've created to get ready for those trials so you know all the information you need to know, you're ready to tell the story? Sure that my method of doing this has evolved over the years, uh, and I think for the so-called um, modern era, and I define the modern era for me as the period of time when I started uh, using a digital technology as part mm -hmm. of my trial presentations. So this goes back uh, probably uh, for uh, perhaps a decade at this point. And what I have found is that actually putting together my opening statement tends to be the touchstone uh, for all of my trial preparation. Mm. Because I uh, give very detailed, fact-dense opening statements. To be able to do that, I have to uh, keep in mind everything that's important about the case, the basic facts of the case what we're contending that the defendant did wrong, how that wrongdoing caused harm to the client, uh, the nature and extent of the harms suffered by the client, and what the key pieces of evidence are to support all of that, whether it's deposition, testimony, uh, medical records, uh, documents produced by the client. But all of that has to be uh, woven together into an opening statement. And in the course of that, I have to focus on, well, there's all this information that we've gathered in the course of discovery. What's really important? What do I need to feature at trial? Yeah, that's that's really an important art of the trial lawyer is you have so much information, you've got to figure what's the distilled down compelling story, right? No question, because uh, you only have so much time with uh, the jury, and they want things to move along quickly. Uh, they want to hear the evidence, but they want to hear the evidence in a form that they can understand. So it's important to shoot for clarity, and clarity means focusing on what's important and then explaining it in a way that's understandable, which in medical cases can often be challenging. Yeah. Well, it, uh, so you're, the opening statement preparing that really helps you get prepared for trial. Now, let me ask you this question in terms of your trial experience. You know, there's a lot of parts of a trial, 
But in your experience and in your view, what do you think is the most important part of the trial and why? That's my answer by saying it's a little bit case specific and in different trials, it may turn out that uh, different parts were critical. For me, looking at it overall, I really think that opening statement is the most important part for me because I'm telling the jury, here's what I think I'm going to be able to uh, deliver by the end of trial. And here's why I think if I deliver that, my client should be entitled to a verdict in his or her or their favor. And I'm previewing uh, in a pretty literal way because I uh, use quite a few video deposition uh, clips many times in opening statement. So I'm giving them a preview of the actual evidence, not my spin on the evidence. And so I feel if I can uh, focus their attention on those key pieces of evidence, then when the actual evidence is presented, they're going to be expecting it. And based on cognitive, uh, you know, assonance and dissonance type learning, because this is something consistent with what they've heard, their minds are going to be very open to really focusing and assimilating uh, and accepting that evidence. Okay. Now, I'm talking with different trial lawyers, uh, everybody has different views about what they're trying to do in opening statement. And trial judges will say, we want you to be just pretty plain and just objective. But some trial lawyers will say, hey, I'm going to try to argue as much as I can. And some are going to say, no, I'm going to be pretty calm and pretty vanilla, just telling the story. What's your approach strategically? If I were um, more charismatic um, and more clever at uh, sounding um, non-argumentative when I was actually arguing, maybe I'd consider the argumentative approach. <laughs> but what, what I'm trying to do um, from a personal standpoint in terms of my connection with the jury and opening is to build credibility. Mm. So I want to be... Um, relating to them, not talking down to them at all. I want to be completely credible, not overstating anything. I want to be knowledgeable about the subject matter. So one thing that I uh, always do in a medical case, for example, is present uh, a list of the medical terms that are going to be used in the case. I give non-argumentative, indisputable definitions for those terms. And then I talk about uh, not just the literal definition, but where do they fit in the case? Why am I taking the time to define for the jury what a term means? So hopefully, by the end of opening statement, the jury uh, respects the fact that I've given them uh, a balanced picture. And I, I make it clear I'm advocating for the plaintiff, but I don't spin the facts, I present the facts objectively. And I present facts that I believe the defense is going to rely on in opening statement. And I try again in a non-argumentative way, but rather based on other evidence to preempt those defenses in my opening. So I'm trying to uh, lay the groundwork for being able to persuade the jury 
later on, but I'm not arguing the case in open. Well, you know, you mentioned an important uh, concept, and that is credibility. And it's real important for you to build and create credibility, not only from the beginning when you're starting to talk to jurors in voir dire, but in your opening statement throughout. Um, in your experience, I mean, I've asked you what's the most important part of a trial, but how important is credibility of the lawyer and the client and the experts? How important is that in the trial? Credibility is the most important commodity that we as lawyers and our clients have. We can't afford to squander any of it uh, because if you lose credibility with the jury, uh, the chances of getting it back are very minimal. And so you want to make sure, really, it starts with the initial client interview. You need to make sure that your client's story is credible and is corroborated by other evidence, typically in the medical cases uh, by medical records, but often also by other lay witnesses. But you have to have a credible case or you can't win. Right. I agree with you completely. Credibility, I think, really determines what the jury decides. And if they don't think you have credibility, you're in big trouble. So in terms of your, your cases, and you represent the plaintiffs in these cases, and not only med mal, but significant uh, injury cases, things like that, what are some of the themes that you've used in trial that you found to be successful themes in trying to discuss the case with the jury? Well, there are, I think, liability themes and there are damages themes. And I think liability themes, uh, of course, is very case specific, but in general, uh, the theme of accountability that, uh, and this uh, cuts across medical cases or other kinds of injury cases, whether it's a corporation or a healthcare system, that they should be accountable for the services or product that they deliver or for the conduct of their employees. Uh, and I think in a medical case that uh, a patient has uh, legitimate expectations for uh, the type of treatment that he or she uh, is going to receive from a medical provider and that uh, a reasonably careful medical provider uh, is going to uh, err on the side of caution or safety, uh, patient safety in the case of a medical case. And in an injury case, safety on the roads, safety in terms of uh, marketing uh, a product. So I think safety is a very powerful liability theme. And in terms of damages, I think the most powerful theme that uh, we can present as plaintiff's lawyers is that despite the magnitude of the plaintiff's injury, that he or she is really trying to achieve the best quality of life that he or she can, uh, mm -hmm. and or that the family 
um, where the family is really required to step in and take care of the plaintiff, that the family is trying to help the plaintiff uh, achieve and maintain the best quality of life that he or she can. I think to uh, try to uh, play to the sympathy of a jury, you know, whether supposedly subtly or not subtly, uh, is a bad idea from the plaintiff's standpoint. And it's important to emphasize positives in the plaintiff's life post-injury. Absolutely. So in terms of um, um, credibility, and you're talking about your themes, now you've seen the defense in every trial, and they're also going to put out themes. Have you heard some themes that you thought, hey, that's a pretty good theme from the defendant's side of the case? Anything come to mind? I'm uh, fortunate or, or not fortunate uh, to uh, typically be matched up against some incredibly skillful defense lawyers. And so I really um, have been privileged to see the best of the best in terms of defenses presented. And in medical cases, some of the defenses that they present effectively is that this was a well-trained doctor or nurse trying to do his or her best, and they used their professional judgment. They made a judgment call, and there are some jury instructions that are useful uh, to the defense in advancing um, that theme, that the uh, defense lawyers are very skillful at weaving into their case and then arguing in closing. Uh, another theme that they use is, you know, there can be more than one way of treating a particular medical problem. Right. And there's an instruction that says just because the result turns out badly doesn't mean that the choice that was made, that the alternative that was picked, was a negligence. And so uh, defense lawyers advance the theme that what the defendant did was reasonable and that even a catastrophic result, the most catastrophic result you can think of, uh, doesn't mean that there was negligence. And I think uh, most skilled defense lawyers uh, acknowledge very early on the severity of the plaintiff's injury and that their clients and they uh, feel genuinely sorry for that and uh, their story that the plaintiff has to be in court, but that doesn't mean that it's their client's fault. And they try, beginning with Vordier, to uh, um, discuss that theme with the jury to try to preempt the natural sympathy that juries feel for catastrophically harmed plaintiffs. And the good defense lawyers do that, I believe, very, very well. I have one example I can think of in particular. When I was a relatively young lawyer, I was trying a case against uh, one of the uh, deans of the medical negligence bar up in Los Angeles. And uh, really um, a complete gentleman, very classy, very funny and charming to talk to. And I really liked him. And I knew the jury was really going to like him. And 
it was a wrongful death case. And he started his closing argument by talking to the jury about how remarkable and wonderful it was that my widowed client and her husband had been married for 41 years and what a beautiful thing that was. And uh, that, um, you know, anybody um, would be blessed to be uh, in a marriage that uh, lasted for uh, that many years. And I'm sitting there, you know, trying to keep myself from burying my head in my hands because I thought, oh, well, there goes any sympathy. But, but luckily, as it turned out, the defendant was not nearly as uh, gracious or credible as his attorney. And the jury uh, returned a verdict in my client's favor. But I thought that the way that he initially um, acknowledged the loss and the severity of the loss in a, in a genuine, gracious way was uh, extraordinarily effective as opposed to some lawyers who might try to implicitly trivialize the loss. Well, look at her. She's gone on. You know, she has a life and she does this and this and that. She sees her uh, kids. She sees her grandkids. Yeah, that sounds like that was a very powerful way for him to start and, and talk about those things. Now, uh, I want to get into picking some juries and, and all of that. Bef but before we get into some of those details, I know you've been trying some cases. I know you've tried many cases before COVID, but you've also tried cases since we've kind of come out of COVID. And what I want to ask at this point, Ken, is, in your experience with the jury trials you've had since we've gotten out of COVID, do you think the juries are acting differently than they were before COVID? And tell us how and tell us why you think that might be if they are different. I think that all civil trial lawyers have been surprised by uh, that there are definitely noticeable differences in uh, jury behavior and verdict after the pandemic compared with before. I think they have tend to skew more favorably for the plaintiff than before. And where this is particularly surprising is in the area of medical negligence cases, because I remember during the first few months of the pandemic, uh, when the hospitals were completely inundated and the uh, nurses and the physicians and all of the uh, hospital staff were heroic in trying to uh, treat all of the COVID patients under conditions where their own lives were threatened on a daily basis because there was no vaccine. And there would be standing ovations from nearby apartment buildings and some of the inner city hospitals when the, uh, there'd be a change of shift. And so all of the plaintiffs bar were thinking, boy, crying medical negligence cases for a decade when COVID is over is going to be difficult. But that could turn out to be the case. Um, I think uh, liability uh, has been found more often uh, in favor of the plaintiff in medical negligence cases post-COVID than free. And uh, average verdicts have been higher. I think because everybody was touched in one way or another by someone pretty close to them, either getting really sick from COVID or dying, that 
people suffered. And even people who weren't touched quite in that way, many people were very isolated because of COVID. Um, people learned what it meant to suffer um, more even in a more immediate way. Younger people, because you get to a certain stage of life and you have lost close to you and you know, that's part of what comes with living. But now you had 20-somethings and 30-somethings who, to an unprecedented degree, were experiencing loss and suffering uh, and mental health issues from isolation um, that they had never experienced before and that were rarely experienced in those demographics. So I think you had a broader uh, spectrum of the jury who understood what loss and harm was about. And that's why uh, we've seen changes in jury behavior since COVID. Well, thank you for sharing that. That's uh, That makes sense with things that I've seen and uh, results that have been reported, but thanks for sharing that. Now, when you're when you're going to trial and you're getting ready to pick your jury, but you're preparing for trial, do you work with things like focus groups? And do you? Uh, how do you use your focus groups to try to prepare you for what you're going to present at trial? That's uh, a work in progress for me, maybe also due to the combination of COVID and the emphasis on Zoom and just advances in technology. Uh, back in the, I've, I've always been a fan of focus groups, uh, but the traditional focus group that I did was more of the mock trial variety in the past, where we would right. work with a consultant who would uh, get a group of people from the community to come in, and uh, another lawyer and I would do a mini trial for them, and it may include uh, reading from depositions or video depositions, and it would include what we would call a opening, meaning a combination of opening statement and closing argument. But I've become much more a fan in recent years of uh, virtual focus groups where you can get data from a larger group of people and where the focus is really on uh, obtaining the data uh, rather than uh, presenting um, an argument. And it would be a matter of sharing the most meaningful, but again, concise submission so that uh, you can then frame the issues for them and then get input from as many people as possible in a demographically similar area to the venue where the case is being tried and incorporate that information into your trial presentation. Sorry. No problem. So what's an example of the kind of data you're trying to get now that's uh, different? Now I'm more interested in finding out answers to very specific 
question. Hmm. Um, in a multi-defendant case, how would you apportion liability among the defendants and why? What's the basis for that? What's the verdict range that you believe is fair and reasonable for the loss of this family's uh, husband and father? And why? Of the evidence that was presented to you, what evidence did you think was um, powerful that uh, formed the basis for your decision? What evidence did you think wasn't very important? With regard to witnesses, uh, I might be inclined to provide uh, a clip of video testimony and ask you find this witness's testimony on a particular issue believable or not believable, and why. As opposed to having um, the jury deliberate as a group and then come up with a mock verdict. I think that is a bad process. Uh, it certainly provides information, but it's arbitrary. One right. jury is not going to be the same as another jury. And I think there'd be too much danger in putting undue weight on the deliberative part of a focus group. So I'm really more interested in the data acquisition part of it. Oh, okay. And do you ever use focus groups to try to get some feedback on how you might deal with bad facts or uh, issues like that? that? Those are uh, also the kinds of issues that we would uh, frame. Well, what about the fact that the plaintiff didn't come into the hospital until, you know, uh, the morning after she felt her baby moving um, less actively? You know, what about uh, the fact that uh, the uh, plaintiff in a vehicle accident had uh, drugs in his system, even if it was below the uh, legal limit of impairment. So you always want to uh, test out uh, the less favorable facts and see how powerfully they're going to influence the jury decision. All right. Well, now in in picking your juries, do you tend to hire jury consultants generally in cases, or all the time, or once in a while? And how have you found them to be? You know, what are the pros and cons of working with consultants? Working with jury consultants, I probably don't do it in a majority of cases uh, for a variety of reasons, it can be a little bit unwieldy. In the courtroom, the jury is wondering, well, who is this person? What are they doing there? Different judges have different views as to what the jury should be told about that. Uh, I think if somebody is identified to the jury as a jury consultant, they don't like it. I think it bothers them as it is that the plaintiffs are kind of trying to see into their uh, brain and extract all this information about their life and they're not really comfortable sharing. Uh, but what I like doing with jury consultants is to have them draft a really good questionnaire for a case and try to talk uh, defense counsel and the court into allowing use of a questionnaire. And what I urge you is 
that really allows us to use the jury selection time with maximal efficiency. Because if we design, say, uh, 35 to 45 questions, juror questionnaire, we can get a lot of really meaningful information. It takes the jury an hour or less to fill the questionnaire out. They turn them in. Uh, we make sure that both sides in the court have copies. Then we adjourn. Uh, we go uh, back to our office for the rest of the day. We analyze the data from the questionnaires, and then we can come back to court the next morning and have a very focused, substantive voir dire. And I don't think it favors one side or the other. I think it favors uh, having the right people serving on a jury, especially in a complicated case. And I think that a jury consultant is incredibly helpful in drafting an appropriate questionnaire for a given case. Uh, I think those are great points. Now, in terms of uh, experience and when I've tried cases, my feeling is that when you get a jury questionnaire and the judge allows it, I think the jurors are most honest to the questionnaire. It almost seems to me that they're most honest answering the questionnaire they're second most honest answering to the judge, and they're the worst in honesty answering the lawyers. <laughs> Question. And if you have a case with very sensitive issues that might be things within the common experience of most jurors or their families or close friends, it's unwieldy if every time a sensitive area comes up, everybody goes back into chambers so they can talk about it. And even then, when they do that, they feel like they're in a fishbowl because there's a bunch of lawyers and a judge and a court reporter hovering around them in chambers and it's hard to talk about it. Whereas, as you suggest, they're free and easy in being candid when they're just writing out the response. And then if there is something in the response that's so sensitive that it uh, needs to be discussed in chambers, I think they're kind of grateful that they are being given an opportunity to talk about it privately. And how are you finding judges these days in being receptive to giving questionnaires? Are you finding them to be more willing to do that than in past years or less willing? Or what are you finding? Finding them to be more willing. Uh, especially um, given that most civil courts are still packed up uh, with cases uh, because of the pandemic-related court closures. And very few judges accept the notion that the use of jury questionnaires uh, does not lengthen voir dire. And I'm not going to claim that it significantly shortens voir dire but sometimes it actually could shorten it a little bit. Um, in a rare case, it might lengthen it a little bit. I don't think the use of a good questionnaire ever uh, significantly uh, lengthens the time for jury selection. I think it comes out about the same, but it's a much better quality jury selection for both sides. And uh, it's an ongoing case-by-case -case battle for me. Right. Uh, to get judges to agree to that. Uh, it's also a battle to get defense lawyers to agree to it 
for whatever reason, I think because some of them have uh, a natural um, aversion to agreeing with anything that the plaintiff wants to do at trial, and they think there must be some trick behind it, or you know, there's something about that process that's going to give the plaintiff an unfair advantage, even though I say to them, of course, we're not going to submit a questionnaire to the court until we agree on every single question. And if there are one or two questions we disagree about, we'll give our respective versions to the court and let the judge make the call. Uh, once in a while, more than once in a while, but in a minority of cases, uh, I'll be, I have relationships with defense lawyers where they're able to overcome that inherent aversion and realize that having better information is better for both sides in jury selection. But I'm still fighting that battle case by case. Yeah, I think you'll still have to fight the battle, but I think your argument is right that the questioner helps you get the better jury and everybody should be in favor of that. Jury selection is really about Monty's deselection. Yeah. As, as we all know that we want to um, be able to make sure that we get the people off the jury who just shouldn't be sitting on that case because of something that's in their prior backgrounds. And that really doesn't make them bad people. But there are things in jurors' backgrounds that can make a particular case not one that they're suited for. And having a questionnaire maximizes the likelihood of uh, finding out that information. Well, questionnaires were something that really weren't used earlier on in your career, and neither was many openings. So what do you think about many openings and how do you do them when you do them in your cases? Openings, and now that there's um, a little bit of uh, behavioral science uh, behind it, uh, I understand that many openings uh, are not a time to advocate uh, your case so much as a time to expose the bad facts in the case and see what jurors think about them. The other uh, thing that I think is important in many openings is to get your damages numbers out there, especially if they're large, because you want the jurors to start getting over the sticker shock of those numbers as quickly as possible. And you want to find out which jurors would have a resistance to awarding the amount of money that you're going to be asking for based on the evidence, regardless of what the evidence shows. So those are, for me, the two purposes of mini opening, get out the bad facts and get out the damage. And so it sounds like you, uh, as the plaintiff's lawyer, and your cases have big damages because you have catastrophic injuries, are, is the first time you're talking about the damages in the mini opening. Absolutely. And then I'm going to talk about it more in voir dire because I'm going to follow up on what I said in mini opening and see which jurors would be absolutely unable to include those amounts in their verdict. This system is fine. 
saying, well, I wouldn't consider those numbers unless and until you prove it to me. Fine with that. But the jurors to say, no, that's just too much money. I could never go there. I can't believe it would cost this much to take care of a brain injured person over his entire lifetime for 50 or 60 years. I just can't go there, no matter what the evidence goes. So it's important uh, to follow up and voir dire on what you brought out in many openings to try to uh, effectively establish uh, cause challenges. And then you're also talking about damages in your opening statement, I'm sure. 100%. And uh, with economic damages, I always mention the specific figure that I'm going to be asking for. For non-economic damages, I might mention a numerical range. I might simply say it's going to be something significantly more than what I uh, discussed about economic damages because the human harms are uh, without a doubt the most serious harms um, that we're going to be talking about in this case. But I would uh, definitely address damages, both economic and non-economic, in opening. And if I'm not going to give a specific number for non-economic, I would at least give a range to prepare the jurors for what I was going to ask for uh, based on the evidence. And I would tell them uh, that uh, it's going to be a very high number in the millions or tens of millions of dollars. And uh, that might sound like a lot of money now. You haven't heard any evidence yet. And at the end of the case, I'm going to explain in detail why the evidence justifies uh, a verdict uh, in that amount. Well, that's great. Thank you for talking about that. So now you, you've picked your jury. You've We've talked about your opening statement already, I think, and uh, you're trying your case. In, in presenting the evidence, do you, like, let's say when you're cross-examining witnesses, whether it's recipient or experts, things like that, do you tend to use just the traditional closed cross exam where you're just trying to get a yes or no, or do you also use what I would call the Jerry Spence open cross where you're just kind of telling your story and you don't care so much what their answer is? What's your approach in doing your witness cross? Hey, specific, Monty. Uh, with medical witnesses, particularly experts, particularly well-traveled defense experts who are trained that never say yes or no in response to a question, and I have to try to get control of them. Yeah. I will frequently uh, try to have the judge strike their answers beyond yes or no as non-responsive and keep them pinned down to admissions that are important for my case, because what they've been instructed to do is basically make all the defense arguments in response to cross-examination questions, and I don't want that to happen. Right. So there, it, it would not be the case with most experts or, say, healthcare provider uh, party defendants that it doesn't matter what they answer. Uh, with a few exceptions. And of course, I, I certainly 
um, avail myself of those exceptions when the uh, potential uh, presents itself. With lay witnesses, it's different. Uh, I think it might be um, effective more often in those cases uh, to conduct a cross-examination where you're presenting the point of your case uh, and it doesn't much matter what's said in response because the lay witnesses are going to generally agree with the premise of the question, whereas with the um, medical experts, uh, they'll often try to dance around the premise of the question and not concede anything because that's how they've been instructed. Yeah, there's a whole lot of dancing going on with those paid experts, <laughs> isn't there? <laughs> For a while, the jury gets that most of the time, so I don't know that they really help themselves by doing that. And um, uh, one of the funniest moments I've ever had in a trial was when I was characterizing um, that testimony to uh, a jury, if you don't mind my telling one very brief war story. Uh, it was a misdiagnosis case, a case I tried uh, many years ago, 30 plus years ago. And the defense expert had uh, been involved in a total of 150 uh, cases as an expert in his career, one from the week, 149 out of 150 for the defense. His answers really um, were not believable, and it was pretty obvious. So in the defense closing, the defense attorney talked about how she had been uh, on a picnic with her family in Griffith Park just the weekend before and heard hoofbeats and looked up and what did she see go by? Not zebras, but horses. So her point was, you think of common things, not uncommon things, and so but the defendant should be excused because maybe the uh, correct diagnosis um, wasn't as common as the most common diagnosis. During rebuttal, I thought the case had gone in pretty well for me so I could have a little bit of fun. And so when it came time to talk about their expert's testimony, so good old Dr. So-and-so, let me tell you what I really thought about his testimony. To borrow counsel's analogy, if you uh, hear the hoofbeat and you look up and you see the horses go by and then you go down at the trail and see what's left, that's what I thought of his testimony. <laughs> and the, the jury, they're all like wondering, are we allowed to you know, have full-throated belly laughs or should we just try to stifle it and giggle? <laughs> And the judge later told me it was the closest he had ever come to completely losing it and bursting out laughing in the courtroom. So I, I had a good time in that moment with uh, a non-credible defense act. You got to love those moments where they happen, don't you? <laughs> For sure. Now, you know, actually, let's talk about when you're, you know, in your final argument and you're putting everything together and you've got these catastrophic injuries. I mean, one of the things that is 
helpful with economic damages is you've got some way to measure it. But now with the non-economic damages, how do you help the jury figure out what's a way to put a dollar amount on these terrible injuries? Well, negligence cases in California, of course, we have a limit on non-economic damages. So um, unfortunately, uh, you don't have to do a whole lot with that. But I try many cases where there are not uh, limits that apply either because it's out of state or because it's not a medical negligence case. Like in your auto cases, you don't have limits. Yeah. And, and so um, there are a number of jury consultants, behavioral scientists who have written about those things. I think David Ball is one of the preeminent ones. And uh, he talks about uh, three factors, how severe is the harm, how interfering is it with the uh, plaintiff's life, and how long-lasting is it. And then, you know, talk about uh, on a very general scale, how close is this injury to the worst of the worst? And how do we value our ability to move, our ability to think, our ability to have a relationship with a loved one uh, over 30 or 40 years that we've now lost? So within that framework, I would talk about uh, the severity of the harm, how it interferes with the plaintiff's day-to-day uh, -day life before and how long-lasting it is. And based on that, if it's on the most severe scale, it's probably harm that, that's going to last for the longest period of time. In this day and age, given what money is, it's probably in the tens of millions of dollars. Uh, it's not like when I started uh, practicing, when to even ask for a million dollars or two million dollars for non-economic damages was a huge number. Right. But that's something else that the pandemic has done, perhaps with um, inflation in every other area of life, that they don't bat an eye, even in very conservative venues, when they hear uh, these kinds of numbers. So when you, when you go through the explanation, depending upon these different factors that you're discussing, do you suggest a specific amount for non-economic damages or a range? How do you approach it? Case by case, um, but uh, Typically, um, it would be a range because I want to respect the fact that this is a jury's call, not mine. And by my picking a specific number, um, maybe I'm taking their job away from them. It's different with the economic damages because those have been calculated by an economist. There are right. black letter calculations to support that. But I want to respect and acknowledge the fact that there's going to be a debate. There is going to be give and take among the jury as to what's fair and reasonable. And I want to give them a meaningful ballpark 
uh, to talk with you. So most often I'm going to present the ring. Okay, well, that's great. Um, Ken, we've been having a wonderful discussion here and I, I think you're sharing such valuable or invaluable information. Uh, as we get here close to the close, I wanted to ask you a question of, you know, what advice would you give to younger lawyers who want to become an outstanding trial lawyer? Or did you get some advice when you were young that you would like to pass on? What would you suggest to people of how do they become a really good trial lawyer? I pick two things, not just one thing to include in that answer. You um, can have more than one, sure. Okay, but there are two, you know, there are many important things, but the two that stand out to me, um, uh, the first one comes from John Wooden, maybe the greatest uh, coach of all time in any sport, who said, uh, failing to prepare is preparing to fail. And he started at the most basic aspect of basketball, which was putting on your socks and your sneakers and tying them. There was a reason behind it because you want to avoid injury. You don't want to get blisters on your feet that might keep you from uh, being able to play. You want to support your ankles and your feet so you're not going to get injured from that. So no detail was too small, uh, you know, to uh, not pay attention to. Every detail needed to be considered and handled. And you can never over-prepare for a trial. Even if there are issues that you think are, quote, gimme, for you, and believe me, I wish I'd encountered more of those in the course of my career because it's pretty much mine. <laughs> uh, but every issue is very important, and you need to really be caring um, all the way along from the beginning of the case. Even though statistically most cases settle, you need to work every case up as though it's going to trial uh, because you can't predict which ones do get tried and which ones settle. Absolutely. So preparation is hugely important. The second uh, piece of advice I would give is probably common sense, at least it was to me when somebody mentioned it to me, which is you need to be yourself in the courtroom. You can't adopt the style uh, of uh, a Jerry Spence or or Johnny Cochran, um, or any other uh, legendary trial lawyer. You have to be yourself. And even if you don't think of yourself as a big personality, as a force of nature, as somebody who lights up every room that you walk into, that doesn't mean that you can't have phenomenal success as a trial lawyer. If you are willing to be open with a jury and be honest about who you are. Uh, and when you show emotion in a courtroom, when you show pain in a courtroom, if you can show those things in a way that's real, that's incredibly powerful. 
And I think that's what um, helps motivate jurors to uh, find uh, in favor of your clients, assuming that you've given them the evidence with which to do that. So preparation and find your own personal voice and don't be afraid to be who you are in a courtroom. That, that's the advice that I'm well, thanks. That's great advice. And uh, I'm sure you you may have done this when I was a young lawyer. You can be very tempted to try to copy somebody that you admire, but you really have to be you, whatever your personality is. So thank you for that advice. That's great, Ken. Hey, this has been a wonderful discussion. I really thank you for being a participant and sharing all this information Thank you so much for being a guest today on Trial Alchemy. Thanks again for inviting me, Monty. I really had uh, a lot of uh, fun. And uh, I think you asked uh, some really important questions that uh, we need to think about as trial lawyers and uh, how to try to do the best we can for our clients. So thank you. Thank you.